all blessings do come down from our great God in heaven. One of those blessings is his word, the greatest blessing. So let's open it together. We're going to be in John chapter 18 this morning. I have three points for you this morning. (coughs) Point number one, the politics of Rome. Point number two, the irony of Israel. Point number three, the purposes of God. The politics of Rome, the irony of Israel, and the purposes of God. Point number one, the politics of Rome. Rome's grip on the nation of Israel was never a very firm grip. You see, these these pesky Jewish people who believed that they could only have one true king, they believed that their one true king was not Caesar, but Yahweh. The Jews believed that any Gentile king appointed over them was a violation of God's law, a violation of God's holy people, and a desecration of God's holy land. So the history of occupied Israel is a history of rebellion. Rebellion against the Assyrians, rebellion against the Babylonians, rebellion against the Persians, and then finally, rebellion against the Romans. It would probably go too far to say that Rome was afraid of the Jewish people, but I don't think it's saying too much if we acknowledge that this tiny Palestinian nation always kept the mighty nation of Rome on her toes. Which leads us to one of the key figures of this morning's text, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea in the days of Jesus' ministry. He was a servant of Rome appointed as governor just four years prior to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in this region. Pilate was politically ambitious. He was hungry to use his position in Judea to curry favor with the Caesar. And Pilate could earn the favor of the emperor by doing one thing in particular, by keeping the peace in Israel. Any sort of rebellion in Israel, any sort of flare-up from the people in the region that might necessitate Rome having to march on Jerusalem and utterly destroy it, would have been a political disaster for the career of Pontius Pilate. It would have been the end of his political aspirations. The normal duty station of the governor was in Caesarea, about 54 miles away from Jerusalem, as the crow flies, kind of in a straight line. And yet in this morning's text, We find Pontius Pilate in the city. He's in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because, as you remember, it is the high holy season of Passover. And during the Passover, there is significant tension in Israel. This is the holiday where the Jews separate their freedom from the bondage of their Gentile oppressors. And so, as the Passover season begins, Pilate wants to be near the city. He wants to be close. He wants to make sure that nothing crazy happens in Jerusalem on his watch. 
if there is a disturbance in Israel, he wants to be there close to keep things from spiraling out of control. And so, on the night of the Passover, as representatives of the Sanhedrin, the sort of ruling council of the Jews, as they approach Pilate with the news of some Messiah figure, some man in Jerusalem who's walking around pretending to be the Messiah, Pilate listens to them with an eager and attentive ear. And so these representatives of the Jews, they tell Pilate about this man named Jesus, a political zealot, to hear them tell it. And that rhymes, I'm a poet. I didn't even know it. Should I keep going? No. A political zealot running around Jerusalem during Passover claiming to be a king. Now that's a problem because only Caesar is king. This Jesus may be fomenting rebellion against Rome right under the nose of Pontius Pilate. You can probably just imagine Pilate's inner monologue as he's sitting there hearing this report from the Jews, right? No, 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 not another Messiah figure. I cannot afford a rebellion right now. I, my, my career can't handle this. It cannot happen. It must not happen. Not on my watch. And so, Pilate does what any astute politician would do. He issues a detachment of soldiers to accompany the Jews in their arrest of Jesus. After two separate interrogations at the hands of two separate high priests, which we talked about last week, why that should not have been the case, Jesus is finally taken to the governor's headquarters where Pilate walks out to meet this troublemaker for himself. Let's see who this Messiah figure is. Let's see what this Jesus is all about. Let me assess the threat. Look at verse 29 of chapter 18. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? What we see here is that Pilate, he wants to know exactly what the issue is. What has this Jesus character said or done that would merit his arrest? And the Jews are not particularly pleased by this question. Look at verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So, you know, rather than laying out the evidence against Jesus, the Jews respond to the governor in a sort of tone of exasperation. <laughs> if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have arrested him, which is not really, you know, the way justice is supposed to work. Now look at verse 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So here's what's happening. Pilate is saying, guys, you really need to handle this amongst yourselves, right? To which the Jews reply, well, you know, governor, we can't really do that. You see, the Jews knew, as did the governor, that capital punishment was strictly forbidden under Roman rule. Strictly forbidden. You're not allowed to... Go around killing people. Only the Romans can kill people that they say deserve capital punishment. And then, somewhat backed into a corner, Pilate begins to 
interrogate Jesus for himself. He tried to ask the Jews to sort of spell out a case against Jesus, and they didn't really do a good job with that. They responded in, you know, sort of, sort of more snark than evidence. And so Pilate says, okay, I guess I'll investigate this thing for myself. And so between verses 34 and 37, which we'll come back to later, there is a, a, an extended back and forth where Pilate is essentially trying to figure out the threat level of this Jesus character. What exactly is the nature of his claims? Why are the Jews so up in arms over this guy? And then in verse 38, after Jesus tells Pilate that his ministry is fundamentally a ministry of truth, Pilate asks, his famous question. What is truth? In this rhetorical question from Pilate, I think that we see the fullness of his character revealed. The governor is a politician through and through. He doesn't really care about what's true. What he cares about is what works. That's called pragmatism. And yet Pilate is not without a conscience. Throughout this entire narrative, Pilate seems to be willing to do whatever he can to help Jesus because he believes that Jesus is an innocent man. He can perceive, because he himself is political, he can perceive what the Jews are doing. He can see the way that they're setting him up, and he knows that, that Jesus is innocent. Look at chapter 18, verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Look at chapter 19, verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find guilt. No guilt in him. Friends, it would be wrong for us to think that Pilate is some form of moral relativist, right? He, he's not walking around like a college sophomore with a French beret smoking a cigarette, quoting the trite philosophies of the postmodernists, you know? All truth is relative to each culture. That's not what Pilate is saying. That's not what Pilate believes. He believes in moral truth and categories of innocence and guilt. His conscience is bound to a degree by what he perceives to be as an injustice in this trial. And yet, at the end of the day, Pilate still sentences him to death. Why? Because it is politically expedient for him. Because at the end of the day, pragmatism says that truth, even if it is true, is merely a servant of power. And friends, I think what we see in the character of Pontius Pilate is a reflection of ourselves at our worst. Even as Christians, we, we believe in truth. We are moral people. We try to live by an ethical Standard. We have a, a moral code for our lives. We have a moral compass. We have a conscience. And our conscience, praise God, is being calibrated by God's word. And yet, at times, we bend our ethic. We bend truth. We adjust our moral code. We will ignore our moral compass. Why? To serve our idols. 
we will go full tilt ahead in line with our moral compass unless our moral compass points us in a direction that is against that which we want most in the world, that which our flesh desires. Pilate's idol was political power. So it might be good for us to stop and consider, to ask ourselves, to look in our hearts, and to, to try to figure out what our idols might be. What, what, what might lead us to compromise our moral standards because we love it so much that we'd be willing to bend or even abandon the truth in order to get it. We certainly see this in, in our own lives, but wouldn't you also say that we see this in churches? I'm sure we've all seen ministries that are built on what works rather than what is true. The aim of many churches is success. But what if their vision of success is different than what God's vision of success is? Just stop and consider the, this entire story here from John 18 and 19. The vision of success for Jesus was that he die a bloody, humiliating death on a cross, abandoned by all of his friends, all of his loved ones, taking the wrath of God on his shoulders. That is success for Jesus in his mission. So what if our bearing witness to the truth and following the truth wherever it may lead us causes our death? Not our literal death, but maybe our literal death. You heard Michael Wall praying this morning for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Friends, there have been millions of Christians who have counted the cost who have followed Jesus, who have borne witness to the truth, even as they gave up their lives in order to do so. But even figuratively, figuratively, what if us bearing witness to the truth causes our pet ministry in the church to die? What if it causes our programs to fail? What if it causes our church to close? Will we bend the truth? Will we abandon the truth in order to accommodate our carnal vision of success? Or will we bear witness to the truth and just sort of leave the rest up to God, doing our best along the way to make sure that our vision of success is drawn more from God's word than from the world? This morning's text shows us two different basic approaches to truth. In one instance, with Pilate, we see truth as a servant of power, truth as a servant of idolatry, truth insofar as it can get us what we want, but then we can abandon it if it doesn't lead us where we want to go. But in Jesus, in his example, in his ministry, we see that power is the servant of truth. At our worst, we treat the truth like Pilate does like the world does, but as children of God, we must always make sure that we come to see our relationship to truth like that of our master. We don't bend it, we don't break it, we don't ignore it, we simply bear witness to it. Okay, let's get back to Pilate. At the beginning of this whole debacle, Pilate wanted the Jews to handle the matter themselves, right? You guys just handle it amongst yourselves. And you know, this, is, this actually makes a lot of sense. It's, it really is the Roman way. This is what Romans would do. They would go in, they would take over a land, they would conquer it, you know, they would cull resources, they would exact their taxes, they would put their people in place, the puppet governments. 
But they would also do things like provide protection and, and roads and uh, postal service. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the best or the worst setup for a lot of these people. But at the end of the day, the Romans would try to let these people govern themselves even after they were conquered. And that's what Pilate's doing here in John 18. He's, he's trying to let the Jews just sort of handle this themselves. But the Jews aren't going to let that happen. The Jews are going to push the issue by making Jesus seem like a threat to Caesar, seem like a threat to Rome. They are forcing the governor's hand to act. He has to investigate. Now, here's what I find fascinating. Pilate, as wicked as he is, as wicked as he is, as guilty as he is in this story, he not only immediately perceives Jesus' innocence, but he also tries to help Jesus. Look at chapter uh, 18, verses 38, just the second half of verse 38 on to verse 40. After he had said this, he went out back outside to the Jews and told them, <coughs> I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And then John adds this parenthetical note so that we know Barabbas was a robber. So what we see here is that Pilate's attempt to help Jesus, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The Jews choose to free Barabbas, an obviously guilty person, and crucify Jesus, an obviously innocent person. Okay, well, plan A didn't work. Plan B. Here's Pilate's next plan. He thinks, okay, it seems like these Jews, what they want is blood. So I'll just give them blood. I'm not going to kill this guy. That's a step too far. My conscience won't allow it. But I'll give this guy the beating of a lifetime in a good dose of public humiliation. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And friends, that word flog, you just read it and you kind of breeze past it. You know, like, oh, I got paddled when I was in school. No. They beat Jesus within an inch of his life. They flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, all to mock him, the supposed king. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So... Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate cannot bring himself to kill this obviously innocent man. But he does have political considerations that are bearing down on his shoulders. So what does he try to do? He tries to satiate the bloodlust of the crowd with a measure of violence. Not a bad political strategy. Just slowly escalate. Don't do too much too fast. Try to start at the lowest level and work your way up. Unfortunately, it backfires on him. Rather than satisfying the bloodlust of the crowd, it sends them into a feeding frenzy. 
The sharks smell blood in the water. And now that they have tasted flesh, they are hungry for more. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And so the frenzy begins. And this leads Pilate to once again try and pass the matter back to the Jews. He basically says, listen, fine, whatever. You think he should die? Then you guys kill him because I'm not going to do it. There's that conscience again. But the Jews know better. They know better. They know that according to Roman law, they themselves will be put to death if they try to put Jesus to death. If they carry out capital punishment, capital punishment will then be carried out on them. So what do they do? They press and they press. They push Pilate harder and harder to do their dirty work for them. And pretty soon what you see in this chapter is just, it's a game of you kill him. Uh, no, you kill him. I don't want to kill him. You kill him. Now look at verse 8 of chapter 19. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Hmm. The governor is afraid. There are probably a lot of reasons why he's afraid, but at least one reason why I think he's afraid in this situation is because he perceives that this thing is not going to go away. He's going to have to kill an innocent man. The Jews will not be satisfied until his blood is spilt, until his lifeless body is hanging on a cross. So, Pilate tries to take a moment and regroup, figure out what to do next. He goes back in to Jesus. He questions Jesus again. He's thinking, listen, maybe we can figure this thing out. Maybe I can ask the right question or get the right information, and I can keep this thing from going nuclear. So he asks Jesus an elegant and simple question. Where are you from? Now, commentators disagree about the nature of this question, what exactly Pilate is trying to get at here. Here's how I understand it. It seems to me like, like Pilate just sort of wants Jesus to admit that he's not from heaven. You know, like, dude, just say you're from Nazareth. You know, just say that you're of this world. Listen, if you just tell me that you're from Nazareth, I'll go out there and tell them that you admit that this whole thing has just been one big mistake. The beating worked. The humiliation worked. This guy really learned his lesson. He's not going to be talking about all this I'm from the father junk anymore. We're going to settle this. But Jesus does not respond to Pilate. Now look at verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have Authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate is dumbfounded. He's like, dude, help me. I'm trying to help you. Help me help you. Why won't you talk to me? I'm trying to save your life. I can crucify you like that. Why won't you talk to me? This, of course, is the error of pragmatism. 
It's the belief that we can control destiny. The belief that we can bend reality to our wills according to our cunning. Pilate trusts in his political power and authority. He trusts in his acumen in the same way that Peter trusted in his sword. And yet for all of this authority, for all of this skill and acumen, Pilate is incapable, utterly incapable of thwarting the plan of God. More on that in point three. But just looking at this from a human perspective for a second, can you, can you blame Pilate for thinking like this? Can you blame him for believing that he's the one in charge? I mean, just look at this Jesus standing before him, beaten and bloody and bruised and weak and pathetic and powerless, clothed in mock robes and a crown of thorns. What kind of king is so easily captured? I mean, what kind of Messiah? The Messiah is supposed to be the one who saves the world, and yet here you are, you can't even save yourself. What kind of savior falls so easily to his enemies? Just a small detachment of Roman soldiers. One disciple tried to put up a fight with a dinky little sword. He cut off a guy's ear. I don't know if you're the one to lead the revolution, you know? And that's kind of the whole point. It's not kind of the whole point. It is the whole point. Jesus is not like any other Savior. He's not like any other Messiah figure. He's not like any of the supposed kings of this world. Jesus has already told Pilate that he is unique. But Pilate could not hear him because he only has one vision for the way that kingly authority can look. Go back to chapter 18. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. You see, Jesus says, I am a different kind of king and I'm ruling over a different kind of kingdom. And in my kingdom, this backwards kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, life comes through death. I know you can't understand it, Pilate, but life comes through death. Victory comes through loss. Power comes through weakness. But Pilate, he just doesn't have ears to hear. Rather than hearing Jesus say these things, and then asking Jesus, hey, okay, well, tell me then, what is your kingdom like? Pilate just goes, aha, so you, you do claim to be a king. Thus, missing the point entirely. Point number two, the irony of Israel. Excuse me. I have two subpoints for you in point two. And by the way, if you're thinking like, man, point one was long, each point is going to be shorter than the last. Don't worry. Point number two has sub, two subpoints. <coughs> Subpoint number one, unclean. 
unclean. You've, you've probably noticed over the last year in John's gospel that one of the main tools that John uses to, to drive the truth into our hearts is the tool of irony. And, and I, it's one of the reasons why I love John's gospel so much. I mean, I love me some irony. It's one of the most powerful tools for comedic effect, but also just to, to bring the, home, uh, the truth home to us, right? It's, it's the subverting of expectations that is so powerful. It causes everything to sort of snap into focus. Now, according to people who study such things, there are four different kinds of irony. But perhaps the most powerful is something called dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is what happens when the audience knows something that the characters don't know. Okay, the audience knows something that the characters don't know. And I think that's exactly what we find in this morning's text. For example, go back to chapter 18 and look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that is the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but but could eat the Passover. So, according to rabbinical custom, right, a Jew could become ceremonially unclean, which, if you're not familiar with all that, is bad, okay? You wouldn't be able to celebrate the holidays by merely entering into the residence of a Gentile. Now, there were some exceptions, and because this is not from God's word, but rather just from human tradition, the exceptions are pretty silly, okay? So, like, a Jew could go into a Gentile establishment as long as the Gentile establishment didn't have a roof, okay? Four walls, roof, bad. Don't go in, you're going to be unclean. Four walls, no roof, the fresh air keeps you clean, good to go. And so, as the Jews take Jesus to the governor's headquarters, we read in verse 28 that they, uh, verse 28 and verse 29, that they refuse to go in. They stop right at the door, which is why in verse 29, right at the beginning, we read, so Pilate went outside to them, right? So, so here's, here's the dramatic irony on full display. We know something that the characters don't. We know something that the Jews in this situation don't know. We know that these people who are so anxious to not become unclean by entering into the residence of a Gentile are already unclean for reasons that are much more significant, much more dangerous than walking in four walls in a ceiling. Not because of some rabbinical tradition, but because they are trying to kill the Son of God. But we're not done yet. The irony thickens. As we've said before, there's nothing in God's word about going into the the domicile of a Gentile. This is from a tradition. But what you do find in God's word explicitly is much to do about righteousness, justice, and due process. Just listen to Exodus 23, verse 7. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I, the Lord your God, will not acquit the wicked. What that means is that if you bring a false charge against an innocent person, you are wicked. 
You are wicked, unclean. Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things that the Lord hates. Notice the word, not dislikes, not that he's not really super comfortable with, right? No, these are the things that the Lord hates. Seven things that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates that, and it's exactly what the Jews are doing in this story. Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19 The judges (coughs) shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, and that is in a capital punishment scenario, that's more of the context, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So if you're a Jew in in, in ancient Israel and you, you hate your neighbor because his ox keeps getting into your land, Right? And, and so you bring a false accusation against him that you know is going to get him killed. But then the judges investigate diligently. They do their job. And they find out that actually he's, he hasn't done this, but you're just trying to get him killed. Well, then you're going to be killed. Proverbs seventeen fifteen, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You guys see what I'm saying? These Jews are so worried about Gentile cooties, even as they are covered from head to toe with the kind of unrighteousness that God says has already made them an abomination. And then the final layer of irony is found in verse 28. Look there. One more thing to point out. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So at the end of that verse, we see that this whole, the whole reason why the Jews want to remain clean is because they want to continue to... I know that they already had the Passover meal, but it was actually like a week-long feast. It was a, a big deal. People, you know, they fly in from all over. That They walk their donkeys. They bring their whole family. It's a big deal. You come into Jerusalem and you celebrate the Passover for an entire week. And so here is the irony. We know this. They don't know this. That... They are worried about becoming unclean so that they can celebrate the Passover, but they are trying to unjustly kill the Passover lamb. And we're not done yet. There's more irony here. There's something else here that I, I, is just so fascinating. Did you notice that, that, Jesus, that Jesus freely enters into the governor's headquarters? The Jews all stand back. Can't go in there. Jesus doesn't say anything. He just... Goes right in. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him. Just imagine the Jews. They're sitting there that morning. They're watching Jesus walk through the doorway of the governor's mansion. Right? You can probably just see it. They're, they're mocking him. They're scoffing at him in their hearts. The Messiah? This guy? He just went inside a Gentile house. 
He's unclean. This guy can't be the Messiah. And yet we know, friends, do we not from the book of Hebrews, that Jesus was a lamb who was sacrificed without spot or blemish. He was perfectly, ceremonially clean when he went to the cross. Which just leads me to ask, are, are you clean? I'm not talking about, you know, do you need to take a bath or do you need to perform some religious rite to rid you of some emotional feelings of guilt that you may have? I mean, is your soul clean? Have you even thought about what it is that makes a man clean or unclean? What makes a woman clean before the Lord? Is it the food we eat? No, Jesus says specifically it's not what goes into our mouths. Is it the building that we walk into? Almost certainly not. I mean, I, I hardly feel like this blue carpet would allow any of us to be ceremonially clean. <laughs> is it the fluids that we come into contact with? Well, no, it's, it's none of the above. What makes a man unclean is that which comes up from within him. Jesus says that what flows up out of our hearts. And what flows up out of our hearts is sin. Friends, if we're going to be honest this morning, right? Like we started our service by being just being honest with God, honest with one another, honest with the world. If we're being honest, our souls, because of sin, are stained. They're stained. We are unclean at the deepest part of our being. And so the most important question for you this morning, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't think about anything else when you leave here, you need to think about this. How can I be made clean? There are a lot of wrong answers to that question. A lot of wrong answers. I can be made clean as long as I stop saying cuss words. Well, you probably shouldn't cuss, but that's, I don't think that's going to get you there. I can be made clean if I come to church and I make sure I get at least 40 out of 52 Sundays a year. Or if I write enough checks. Or if I serve enough poor people. Or if I spend enough time praying and, and reading the Bible. If, if I get all of my doctrinal ducks in a row and I really understand the Bible super well, God's going to be pleased with me then, right? None of that is the answer, friends. The answer is found in the old hymn. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How does all that work? Ah, I could talk about that for a whole nother hour but I don't have time right now. If you're here and you're wondering, like, how can I be made clean? Sean, everything that you've said has resonated with me, and I want to pursue that. I don't know what to do next. Come talk to me after the service, or really just talk to any person in this room who is a member of this church, and we'd be happy to help you think through that. Subpoint number two, the king. In subpoint two, I think we really shift from Thick irony to just blatant hypocrisy. <clears throat> Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 19. Verses 14 and 15. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered him over to be crucified. Just remember the context here. Israel is a holy nation. They're holy because they've been set apart by God. They've entered into a covenant with Yahweh. The Lord God of Israel is the king of Israel. He is the only rightful king of Israel. And yes, I know, I know in the Old Testament there were human kings, but the purpose of those human kings was to make sure that the kingdom remained in submission to the one true king, God himself. In the same way that Jesus is the shepherd of the church and he appoints pastors to be under shepherds, Yahweh was the king of Israel and he appointed under kings to point back to his perfect rule and reign. This is one of the reasons why one of the duties of the king was to, right after his coronation, write out for himself a complete copy of God's law. Listen to Deuteronomy 17. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Why do they have to do that? Because the king has given us laws for how we are to live in his kingdom. They are very gracious laws, very good laws, but they are nonetheless laws. And the purpose of the king was to make sure that everyone in God's kingdom looked back at these laws and followed them, obeyed them. And yet here we stand. The children of Israel, not just the children, but the leaders of Israel. These aren't just, you know, the average people sort of sitting in the pews. These are representatives of the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews. This is the highest court in the land. And here they stand before a corrupt Gentile ruler saying, we have no king but the king of Rome. That would be like me, your pastor, standing up here before you today in the pulpit saying, I serve no master other than Satan. It's the deepest kind of compromise you can possibly imagine for the leaders of the Jews. Yahweh isn't our king. Caesar is our king. I have a lot more here in my notes, but I don't know if I want to use that right now. I just, this is here for us. This is here for us. Not so that we can wag our fingers at the Jews and go, oh, how could they? Such, such compromisers. Oh, after all God did for them, how could they possibly do that? No, that's not why this is here. This is here so that you can look at their example and use it as a mirror to look into your own heart. In what ways are you doing what the Jews are doing? In what ways are you trying to, because of your idols, because of your false loves, trying to transfer your citizenship from one domain, one kingdom, one king, to another, from the light to the dark, from the good to the evil? Oh, friends, it happens to us so in such a way that we can barely perceive it. I mean, the Jews probably did not wake up that morning thinking that they were going to go stand before the, the, the Gentile governor and, and, and profess faithfulness to, to Caesar. They didn't think that was going to happen. And yet here they are. Don't underestimate what can happen to you if you do not control your idols, if you do not constrain your false loves. 
Here you sit this morning probably not anticipating that in a month or a year or five years or ten years or fifteen years or maybe all the way at the end of your life, however long that may be, you probably are not anticipating that you will one day profess allegiance to someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But it can happen if you are not careful, if you are not guarding, guarding your heart, if you don't even take this morning's sermon deep into the bowels of your soul. And let the work of conviction do something in you. Point number three. The purposes of God. As we close out our time together in God's word. I want us to see in point three. The way that Jesus makes the invisible hand of God's providence become visible. It's so cool. Look at verse 37, chapter 18, verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, that is the language of providence. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, there are two basic ways you can read this story. You can read it through the lens of skepticism, of bare materialism. You can read it through the, the lens of, of carnality, uh, vision that can only see the things of this world. And, and if you do, you'll probably still find some interesting things. You'll see conflict between religion and politics. You can see herd theory and self-fulfilling prophecy. You can see what Jung would call the psychological conflict between the two great archetypes of the human psyche, the Messiah and the despot. But if you look at the story in that way, you will see nothing more in Jesus than what Pilate saw in Jesus. A good yet tragic figure. But if you look at this story with eyes of faith, if you look at this story the way that Jesus himself sees this story, then you will find something incredible. Did you notice in our hymn this morning? Where are we at? Where are we at? At the very end of God moves in a mysterious way, the last verse, blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work, like this story, scan his work in vain. I'm looking, I'm trying to find your hand here, God. I'm trying to find your goodness, your love, your grace, your justice. And I, and I can't see it. I'm scanning in vain. But God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. That's what Jesus is doing in verse 37. He's trying to explain to Pilate, I'm, I'm telling you, you think you're telling me about this situation? You have the authority? You don't understand anything. I'm telling you about this situation. I'm trying to make it plain to you. In the same way that Jesus tried to make this story plain to Pilate, he is also trying to make the story of the gospel plain to you this morning. And I'm trying my best to do the same thing. I'm trying to help you understand, friends, that every single detail of your life has been divinely orchestrated since before you were born. 
in order to accomplish something incredible, the glory of God through the redemption of your soul. The reason why you're here this morning is not an accident. That sounds pretty mystical to me, Sean. It, mystical or not, it's either true or it's not true, friends. Either God is sovereign and he is divinely stitching together every atom in the universe, or he's not, and that's not happening. I think you can either be a materialist or you can be a Christian. Those are your only options. And with eyes of faith, I think you can see that every good thing that has ever happened to you and every bad thing that has ever happened to you, all of it has been working together to bring you where you are right here, right now, to hear this gospel truth. So I pray that you hear it with eyes of faith. The gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule. And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, because of the great love that he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, even when we were rebelling against him, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake, the perfect obedient life that God requires and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And on the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and now he reigns as the king in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to anyone and everyone who repents of their rebellion against the king and trust solely in him for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to trust. For anyone who may be here this morning who has not trusted but who feels compelled to trust even now, we pray that your spirit would quicken their heart, bring them to life, give them the gift of faith, and cause it to persevere. For those of us here who already know you, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would cause us to believe even more. We believe, God, but help our unbelief grow our faith this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand.